My name is Jeff Harbach. I'm the CEO of Coffin Fellows and an MBA graduate of the University of Texas at Austin. The Latter-day Saint MBA Society was founded by a group of MBA students and alumni who are members of the Church of Jesus Christ of Latter-day Saints with the hope of bringing together a community of business people striving to bless the world. In this podcast, we'll hear interviews with Latter-day Saint thought leaders that we hope will inspire you both in your professional and spiritual life. For more information about the Latter-day Saint MBA Society, visit latterdaysaintmba.com. And I'll pass it over to Kurt Frankham, who will host this week's interview. Welcome back to another episode of the Latter-day Saint MBA podcast. Today, I'm connecting with uh, Liz Wiseman. How are you, Liz? Yeah, I'm well. I'm on the mend, as you know, from a shoulder, broken shoulder, but I am mending. Good. Well, we we hate to hear anybody uh, get hurt and whatnot, but uh, uh, hopefully it hasn't hurt your uh, your writing arm, your typing arm as you write more, more and more, right? <laughs> yeah, I can type half of the letters. <laughs> Good. Nice. Well, and we've had opportunity to connect through uh, my other podcasts, the Leading Saints, and had some great interviews. And you've always bring some interesting perspective and knowledge. And most people may be familiar with your work as as an author, as you've written uh, various books. Uh, one, probably, I don't know if it's your most popular, but maybe it's been out uh, longer than others. Which is Multipliers: How to How the Best Leaders Make Everyone Smarter. You've written Rookie Smarts, The Multiplier Effect, and most recently Impact Players. So. Uh, how, how anything else like to put you into context for maybe somebody who's uh, less familiar with you? Well, you know, maybe I'm most known for that, those books, but I also spent 17 years working at Oracle as a corporate mm-hmm. executive. And I think I'm a different kind of a researcher and author because I've had this experience kind of out in the corporate management trenches. Yeah. Yeah, I, I think it brings some good perspective. You can't just uh, step out of college and start writing strategy and leadership books, right? Well, I tried to, but fortunately, <laughs> I, it, very, it was very prideful of me. I, like, I came out of college, like, I want to teach leadership. And so I went and tried to get a job for Zanger Miller. And they're like, you know, if you want to teach leadership, how about you go get some experience managing people? Mm-hmm. Nah, unnecessary. You know, like, this is my calling. And I'm so glad I was like, put in my place. and. Mm like given this guidance to like go out and manage people and lead and go get like bloodied in the ring and like then try doing this. And that has been my path. Yeah. Reminds me of, uh, you know, all the work I do with leading saints. We talk about big ideas and, you know, thoughts and concepts related to church leadership. And then I was called as an elders corn president. I'm like, Oh yeah, this is a little bit more nuanced and complicated than just writing a, an interesting article about, you know, leadership, right? I think there's some nuances you pick up in the real world. Well, and I think what I gained was empathy. Mm. And I, I think like what informs my work is that it is hard to lead. And, and, you know, you are making tough decisions and, like there's a right way you're supposed to do it. And then there's the wrestle and what's hard and what's difficult. And I just think, um, I, I know how hard it is and how easy it is to say, well, this is the right thing to go do. Mm-hmm. Yeah. So just give us in, in five minutes or less, give us a broad overview of your education journey and your professional journey starting from high school. Oh, okay. My education journey. Um, oh, and then there's my <laughs> spiritual journey, which <laughs> that's... Yeah. That, yeah, we'll, we'll start with education, then we'll, we'll loop back. So, Well, you know, my education journey, it was a pretty simple one in that I start, I went to college um, wanting to be a lawyer. Hmm. And 
I think the reason why I wanted to be a lawyer is I thought I would be good at it because I was sued when I was 17 years old. Oh my goodness. Yeah. So I was actually sued and brought to small claims court to defend myself. And you have to really know my dad to totally appreciate this story. But when I received this summons to small claims courts, you know, and I am the defendant in it, my dad said to me in his very classic way, he said, well, Elizabeth, you're on your own here. And I was being sued for $200. Uh-huh. And uh, essentially what I was sued for was wrongful sewing, which... Uh, oh my goodness. Yeah. I mean, like, it's not really a crime, but in small claims court. So, you know, this $200 was my life savings at the time. This is uh-huh. all the money I had in the whole world. And my dad was like, you're on your own. And fortunately, so I thought I have a real testimony of home teaching because... <laughs> Like in this moment, I'm like, well, what do I do to defend myself in court? And our home teacher was a corporate attorney for HP. Oh, perfect. And I grew up here in the San Francisco Bay Area. And so I called him up and um, and Howard Gardner. um, Yeah, Howard Gardner. And I'm like, Brother Gardner, what do I do? You know, and he's like, well, you need to have like witnesses and situation. And I put this whole case together and was victorious in small claims court. Mostly not because of any skill on my part, but, you know, you really can't hold a minor to a contract. So I think even if I was completely in the wrong, I think I probably would have um, (laughs) acquitted or received a favorable judgment here. But so I went thinking, oh, I'm going to be a lawyer. But the problem was, you know, people stopped suing me. (laughs) So Yeah. It's like my interest in law faded. And, uh, you know, I, my education years were sort of survival years for me in that it wasn't that it was a brutal or difficult process, but I was self-funding my education because when it came time to go to college, my dad said to me, well, your mother and I could help with college, but we won't. And so you're on your own. And so, you know, I did my undergraduate, my graduate degree Mm self-funded. And so I didn't have like the blessing of cushion and margin. Like I had to like develop a plan to pay for a hundred percent of my college myself, which meant there was no messing around exploring careers and majors, like pick something, stick with it and graduate. And I don't know how I ended up in business, but I think it actually might've been just pure avoidance of taking a language. Like I was terrified and I'm still, this is like actually an adult. I'm 57 years old and still like, I'm not afraid of many things in life other than having to learn a language. Like it's really, yeah, it kind of scares me. And like somehow in my mind early on, I convinced myself I wasn't good at language probably because I tried to learn Spanish. And so I was always like, how do I avoid like language. Mm-hmm. I'm not going to get a good grade in that class. And so I'm like, oh, I can get to be a business major and do an extracurricular in math. I'm good at math. So that's how I think I ended up in business. Wow. So there wasn't necessarily a moment where you thought, I'm going to be this when I grow up. No, it was how do I not have to take Spanish or French or Italian or Chinese or Japanese? Like, how do I avoid that? Uh-huh. But then once I was in And I was always good at math and good at numbers. I have one of these very skewed kind of like SAT profiles, really, really good at math and quantitative things, really poor in language, Hmm. which is funny because I, I write books and like somehow I got good at that. Um, Yeah. They're not math books per se. I mean, (laughs) no, in fact, if I have to do anything more than basic statistical analysis, I have to like pull someone in to help me with like the true regressions and all that, like really complicated um, kinds of statistics. But 
uh, yeah, and I um, ended up in business. I probably had some good logic for it at the time, but it was as an undergrad. I took mm-hmm. Gary Patterson's OB three twenty one at BYU, right? At BYU, and mm-hmm. I like. I don't know if it was I loved the subject matter or I just loved Carrie Patterson. Mm-hmm. I still just love Carrie Patterson. He was this amazing mentor to me. You know, if you don't know Carrie, you should know Carrie. He's like brilliant and kind of irreverent and witty and sarcastic and fun and funny. And, and I ended up taking this class and thinking that's really what I want to go do. Hmm. And I awesome. ended up working as an intern for him. Yeah. Yeah. And, and so it was uh, go, just going to BYU. Was that always like your number one choice or did you look at some other options for your undergrad? Well, I didn't start at BYU. I started at San Jose State because oh, okay. I wanted to go to BYU and I applied to some California schools and I was accepted to BYU, but I couldn't afford to go to BYU. So like there's a like a big part of me that really like I have a very soft spot in my heart for like people who are self-funding school. Cause I did yeah. that. And so I stayed at home. I lived in San Jose, commuted, went to San Jose state for a year and then um, transferred when I was a sophomore. Nice. And then, uh, so you graduate uh, and you, you had some great mentors during college, one being Carrie Patterson, any other mentors that come to mind that uh, helped you through those college years? Well, you know, Bonner Ritchie was yeah. this, incredible um, mentor to me. He was a chairman of the department um, of organizational behavior and, you know, which was a separate department back then. It wasn't part of the MBA program. It is now. Um, He was an incredible mentor. And I just um, went and visited Bonner. His health is not great. And um, I told him, I'm like, Bonner, do you remember when I took like org theory from you? And about midway through the semester, you wrote on one of my papers, like, Elizabeth, your ideas are really good. I wish we heard more from you during class. Hmm. And I'm like, Bonner, you you unleashed a monster. That's <laughs> <was> like <laughs> because you know I'm I'm fairly outspoken, and Bonner was one of those people who said, "Speak up, like hmm. raise your voice in the world." I already I already considered myself fairly outspoken, but he really pushed me down that path. Um, I I think those are the two professors who who probably had the most. And let me add a third to this: Lee Perry, Lee Perry, who was the dean of the um the Marriott School for a number of years. So I was a TA for for dean. Um, I'm sorry for Lee, and you know I was so nervous. I was a first year uh, in the MOB program, and they didn't generally give. TA ships to first years. It was always given to second years, but I applied for it and there weren't that many and I ended up getting it. And I was incredibly grateful for this. And I was also nervous. Like I wanted to do a good job. I was a first year. So I was um, Lee's TA for the semester. And at the end of the semester, there were these feedback forms and I got them. They printed them out. I took my packet of feedback um, back with me to my, you know, my, um, apartment writer and I'm going through it and I'm just horrified by this feedback because like it's mostly good but there was this one thing that said like Liz brings her personal issues like into class and it's distracting or something like maybe maybe that's what I heard but maybe what it actually said was like 
shares personal stories in class and it's distracting or something like this. And I'm like, oh, that's terrible feedback. And so I go and I sit outside Lee's office and I wait for him to come back. And he comes back. I'm like, Lee, I have to talk to you. And he's like, what's about? I'm like, it's a feedback. Have you seen the feedback? He goes, yes, I've seen the feedback. And, and, and so he invites me and we sit down and talk. And he's like, Liz, he goes, let that go. And um, I'm like, well, yeah, but that, I felt that's kind of negative. And I wanted to do a good job for Lee. And, and he goes, yeah, like, and he draws this bell curve on his whiteboard. I still remember. It was very influential to me. He draws his bell curve and he says, like, all that stuff down there at the low end, that comment and that one. He goes, ignore that. That's an outlier. And I'm like, oh, I love Lee Perry. He's such an awesome professor. And then he said, oh, and then see these comments? Like, Liz is amazing. Best TA ever. Da, da. He goes, ignore those two. I'm like, well, I don't want to ignore those. I just want to ignore the negative. And, yeah. and he's like, we just laugh about this. And he really like that moment and being his TA um, really helped me to be able to process difficult mm-hmm. feedback and to also to put it into context, but to put positive feedback into context too, which is that is not you and don't, you don't need it and don't go down that path. Mm-hmm. And, you know, I joke, you know, Lee was the dean for how long? And I'm like, oh, yeah, basically, I still work for Lee. You know, every time he would invite me to come out to the school and it was numerous times. I'm mm-hmm. always like, Lee, I'm still working for you. I'm like now a full grown up and I'm still working for you. The problem is I get paid a lot less than I did when I was 13. <laughs> <Right. laughs> I'm like, yeah, like, where, where do we get the $10 an hour or whatever? <laughs> yeah, right. Right. So, and did you go right from graduate school or right from undergrad to graduate school? Did you start right away? I did. And back in the day, that was sort of the norm is that Mm -hmm. you just kind of kept going. Yeah. And, and that was, uh, you had a master's in organizational behavior, right? Was that always, I mean, you just sort of had a passion for that, that side of business. And and, well, I actually started in the MBA program and Mm -hmm. switched over. Like I was, I think accepted into both and then kind of got maybe a, a special deal that I could take classes in both and then choose. Mm-hmm. And I ended up deciding to go into the OB because my undergrad was in finance. And so I'm like, okay, I've got some of the the quant stuff down. And it was really what I kind of, I don't know. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> what I was, was passionate about it was the part I really liked. Yeah, sure. And it was in college where you, where you thought I'm going to, I'm going to write books someday. I mean, where, where did that start? Oh no. I was like, I'm going to write papers because that was in front of me. Like I Mm. college for me were survival years. I did not have this luxury of, gee, what do I want to do? And let me explore this. And let me explore that. Mm. It was, how do I get through school self-funded and get a job? Like how do I graduate without debt and get a good job? So that was really my focus. And, um, but I, you know, the leadership and management has always kind of spoken to me and called to me. Yeah. What would you say that maybe students listening who are in, you know, MBA school, but they're in that survival survival mode, is there any advice that comes to mind for that specific uh, person? I really, I, I, this is going to sound kind of twee, but going through school this way is an incredible blessing. Hmm. And it may not feel like it at the time, but I, for me, it it caused me to be focused. I was a good student. Now, partially I was a good student because maybe I'm just a good student, but I think part of it is I couldn't afford bad grades. Like I 
there were no redos. And, you know, and I think because I worked and went to school, like I was a more focused student. And um, I often, you know, look at my kids, my kids' friends, and they have all these options and all this anxiety about, well, what should I go do? And how do I optimize my career? And I'm like, oh man, I was just looking for a good job. Yeah. There was something about just being, have a really practical orientation. And, and I think in many ways, it became this incredible blessing to me that I wasn't trying to optimize my career. Hmm. Yeah. And then uh, how, when, what's the story behind uh, Oracle and how that opportunity uh, came, came to be? Oh, Oracle is my backup job. And, oh, yeah. Yeah. And so uh, I wanted to go work for this management training company. And I kind of sh- found my way to the president of Zenger Miller. And I'm like, hey, you should hire me. I want to teach leadership. And he's like, hey, you should go get some management experience. And he didn't hire me. So I had to take my backup job, which was working for Oracle. And it wasn't a total coincidence that that was an, an option. I had done a project in um, the org culture class. Uh, and Novell was the company that we studied. And at, at the time, Novell was this like innovative, interesting, maverick kind of company. It was like this germ of what is today Silicon Slopes. And I'm like, I want to work for a company like that. A company that's kind of like chopping it up, making a difference, like doing things in interesting ways. And I'm from the San Francisco Bay Area. I knew I was going to be coming back to Silicon Valley. So I'm like, how do I find a company like that? in Silicon Valley and someone, you know, uh, put me in touch with Oracle and I went to work for them kind of presenting that I really wanted to go do some management training. And now what that did is open up an opportunity to go spend, oh, I don't know, 16 of those 17 years, not just working in a managerial role, but working in pretty senior management positions and having executive level responsibility in a rapidly growing company. Yeah. And as you started at Oracle there, what, what was your general, I mean, did you have a specific strategy or goals you wanted to accomplish there? And and if you're to go back, like what advice would you give yourself on day one, how to maybe better approach that opportunity? You know, I don't, I don't have any regrets about the opportunity. Um, I, I feel like I got great guidance early on in my career and, you know, I was about a year into my experience there when I had a chance to transfer to another department and there was an opening in the internal training department. And I'm like, ah, this is my chance to get involved in management training. So I go interview for this job and, you know, the the group had mostly done technical boot camps. And at the time Oracle was hiring the top technical talent out of the top technical programs in the top tech in the top universities in the nation. So these are like the, the, the creme de la creme of, of technology and programming. And they ran a boot camp for all of these new college graduates. And so it was very technical and I didn't want to do that. I wanted to teach management training, but in this interview, um, the VP, he's asking me these questions. And then it was sort of my turn to, I don't know, ask him some questions. And so I decided to make my case, which was, hey, Oracle's growing really rapidly. We've got a lot of young technologists thrown into management. They don't know what they're doing. They don't have the experience, the training, they're wreaking havoc on people, sort of like an early observation about diminishing leadership. Hmm. And Bob listened, he agreed. And then this VP said to me something that I will never forget. And it really shaped my whole career is he said, um, he goes, Liz, 
like we agree that's a problem and we think you're great and we'd love to have you join this team he said but your boss she has a different problem she's got to find a way to get you know 2000 new college graduates up to speed in oracle technology over the next year and what would be great is if you could help her do that now he didn't say it with a little sarcastic tone that that was added um, for effect but I'm like, that's not the job I want. That's not what I'm passionate about. I don't care about the nuances of, you know, correlated subqueries and like the virtues of database indexing technique. I don't want to be a database administrator. And, you know, I, I'm like thinking, well, maybe I should just advocate more strongly. But then I could, I was realizing what he was telling me was, Liz, make yourself useful. Like look around you and see what needs to be done and do it. And it was kind of like that moment where you walk into a church activity and you realize like the room's not set up. The room's not ready. It's not your calling. It's not your job. You're there just to partake. Yeah. And you have to make this decision. Do I kind of like do my calling and my assignment or do I do the job that needs to be done. Like, mm -hmm. and, and I'm like, oh, I think what he's telling me is this is what's important. It's what's important to Oracle. It's what's important to me. It's what's important to the, the, the department manager. And so I decided like, if it was important to the company, I would make it important to me. And it, like, it was a, a process of getting a little bit more humble and saying, okay, yeah, I don't really want to do that. But I'll learn, and of course, I'm woefully underqualified. I graduated with mm. a degree, a master's in organizational behavior. Now, I did work in the computer lab, but it was like mostly helping people like startup yeah. programs and print and things. But, you know, and I had taken some programming courses, but like I am no programmer, but I said, you know what, let me get good at that and let me figure out how to do that and let me do it well. And then another opportunity opens up and then they're like, Hey, we need someone to manage the department. And I'm like, no, get someone else. I'm loving teaching. And they're like, like, no, like we want you to do it. No one else, you. And I'm like, why me? And it had everything to do with this willingness to, to pay attention to what was important and work on it. And it was really, I think they noticed like a form of humility. Mm. Like I will serve where I am needed, but it wasn't like a mousy passive, like, oh yeah, just whatever. Like, I think they saw this combination of, I don't know, maybe bold, but also, um, I don't know the right word. Supported is probably not a word that anyone would use to describe <laughs> me, but, yeah. um, I, I, I like humble and willing, I think yeah. might have been, I don't know that humble, humble sort of an aspirational word more than a, a good descriptor, but it really set this course of, you know, if you're going to go work for an organization that makes software care about software, mm. you know, don't be so arrogant to think that other people should care about what you care about, like go and serve. And um, that opened up, I managed a job and then I get more responsibility and thrown into this. And, you know, I find myself working where there's just a lot of action and a lot of value and being constantly given like the hottest 
hardest problems. And I loved it, but it was really this mentoring I got from Bob, which is, hey, make yourself useful. Yeah. I love that because it's so it's such a real world uh, scenario that I think many, especially in our audience, have maybe uh, have maybe faced. And I'm sure many. And, and I love how you reframe it to see, you know, this is an opportunity. I'm going to step in and lean in and see what I can grow, or and see what I can learn and the ways I can grow. Um, but I would imagine some people could reframe reframe that to just say, well, this must not be the place for me. I'm going to start uh, perusing and you know talking to headhunters or whatever to see if I can find my way out. But maybe that's not always the best option, even though it seems like the practical one. Well, and then there's a kind of another factor that came into this. And, and this was just, I think I entered into my career, not overly rotating on my career. Like, like in some ways, the secret to any success that I've had is a total lack of ambition. And, you know, I see a lot of people who come into organizations gunning for things Hmm. like, okay, I want to achieve this. I want to be a vice president by this. I want this kind of responsibility. I want this kind of raise. That was not me. I was like, you know what? I just want to do good work. And so I would latch onto things and, and do good work, but I didn't really care so much about what happened and what that allowed for me to do. It certainly didn't take me down this like kind of mousy, like quiet in the background path. It's like, I just worked without an attachment to how it affected my career. And, and I kept getting opportunity after opportunity and promotion and raise and, you know, I'm one of those people who have never asked for a raise. That's probably not a great strategy for a lot of people, but I just kept getting it. I remember the day that like I was promoted to a vice president and given this like enormous raise, I came home and told my husband and he's like, did you ask him for that promotion? I'm like, no. And he said, did you talk to him about that raise? I'm like, no, it's never come up. But there was something powerful that happened of just not being attached to the trappings. Mm-hmm. Of the work. And I think what it allowed me to do is do better work, but also be bolder. Like I remember just very early in my career, people would say, Oh, yeah, you're going to get in trouble for doing that. Hmm. I'm like, With who? And they're like, Well, with Larry. Like he's not Larry, my husband. Larry. Oh, yeah. <laughs> yeah, that's where my mind did go. But <laughs> yeah, like, no, like he set that program up. Like you're making changes. I'm like, Well, what's Larry going to do? fire me like if he fires me i'll just go get another job and other people say whoa i don't know that's really pushing things like i don't know if larry's going to agree with that i'm like well is he planning on killing my children because if he's not going to kill my children i mean i know he's a tough guy but he doesn't seem like (laughs) a baby killer to me like almost like this it doesn't matter yeah and i think it's a little bit of sort of a Buddhist kind of concept of like holding those things at a distance and just like being separate from the outcome. I felt allowed me to be a lot more powerful. Yeah. Wow. That's awesome. That's awesome. Um, let, tell me about the, um, just those, those Oracle years with like, you know, with the backdrop of our faith tradition, you're, you're, uh, I assume you're, you started a family at that point, you're, you're married and whatnot, or, or break it down. Like, and speak to maybe the, the, the women in the audience who really want to establish a great professional business career, but they're sort of trying to weigh different options uh, with, with our faith traditions. What, what would you, how would you break that down? Well, you know, I came into Oracle different. 
you know, I was married when I joined Oracle and it turned out to be an absolute advantage. And, you know, everyone else is sort of in a singles meetup kind of work Mm. experience. And I'm like, not worried about that. And I think it allowed me to have um, really close relationships with the male executives I worked with because like, I don't know, they were married and I'm married. And I just thought of them as executives, not as someone who's going to set me up with someone in their group. And it mm. just allowed me to not, I think it allowed me to be perceived in a really neutral and positive way. Um, you know, I didn't have children until I was 30. So I, I mean, that's old or young, depending on your perspective on that. Sure. So for me, I had a little bit of my career um, under my belt. And I remember coming back from my first maternity leave and I was working for a man named Phil Wilson, who's one of the most amazing bosses I've ever worked for. He had been the head of HR for Larry Ellison and for Steve Jobs. It's hmm. a pretty tough guy. Yeah, I imagine. And it was an amazing guy. And I came back in, I'm like, Phil, I'm like, up to this point, I've solved all my problems by just working harder. And I said, I can't do that anymore. And, you know, a lot of people think, oh man, this is like, you got to come back to work and pretend like work's still your number one priority. And I did the opposite. I'm like, Phil, I just have to tell you that like, I'm a mom now. And if my work ever comes into conflict with my home and like my job as a mom, I'm like, I have to tell you, like my family's going to win. Hmm. Like I've already decided. And I think it's something in our faith we learn to do is just decide early yeah. who we are and what's important. Like, I am not going to do this. I am going to do this. I'm like, my family's going to win. And, and I remember Phil, you know, he was had daughters of his own and was, you know, much older than me and, and more mature and more experienced. And he's like, well, Liz, let's keep those out of conflict then. Hmm. And he became this, um, almost like an ambassador that, look, you know what, let's avoid conflict between the two. So he was the one who's like, you know what, I know there's this meeting off in Europe and like, you don't need to go to it, send someone for your team. Or like, I probably am a little over-rotated on work ethic. And so he'd be like, you know what, it's okay. Like, let it go. And so he because I think he, not because he was this great guy, he really wanted me to keep working. Like He's like, we really like you. We really need you. And I just felt by really owning that and putting it out there that I actually gained the help I needed to manage that. And I think by being really open about my faith and who I was, like it, in every way turned out as an advantage. And again, I'm, I'm not working in Utah. This is, I I'm working in California in Silicon Valley. Like yeah. I'm, a, I'm in Babylon. I'm in Babylon. <laughs> yeah. And, and I, I remember this one moment where Ray Lane, the president of the company, we are working on this important initiative and he's Liz. I, he's like, I want you to lead this. And we had to create a bunch of like, video footage and a bunch of things. And he says, and I want you to be like the spokesperson for this. I'm like, why me? This isn't really my job. Like I should be behind the camera directing this effort. But like, and he goes, no, we want you to do this. I'm like, why me? And he goes, Liz, you're like a Mormon mom of three. I have four kids, but back then it was just three. He goes, everybody loves you. Everybody trusts you. 
And I'm like, Ray, are you exploiting me for my faith <laughs> and my motherhood? I'm like, I'm okay with that. You know? <laughs> yeah, that's a good brand. <laughs> but it, it, I think um, the fact that I wasn't like, I never hid my faith. I think mm-hmm. everyone knew of my faith. I think, I think I was respected and trusted for that. And, and just being okay with it. Like I wasn't like somehow I made that like an asset or an advantage. It's just that, I don't know. I think, I think I was just comfortable in my own skin and in my own faith and in my own station in life, which happened to be married with kids could have been that I'm single and without kids. And I'm just okay with that. And I'm open about it. I think it somehow makes us more powerful when we Mm. just are okay with wherever we are and okay to be different. Yeah. And I just love that your approach there of just having that conversation and not just, you know, trying to prove, you know, to the, to your bosses that, Hey, I'm, I'm all in here, you know, like, but to have this conversation that's real saying, you know, I do actually prioritize my family in, in, in my life over this and that, that may come into conflict. And so let's talk about it. Yeah. And I think like there was a part where I was just really okay with being female like mm. there was this one moment, maybe this is like too much information, but we'll go there. <laughs> Let's go. I'm, I'm running a meeting and it's with Oracle's executive committee. So these are the most senior executives. These are all people who, you know, Oracle's like a $30 billion business at the time, public company, of course. And I'm in this meeting and I'm a nursing mom and I'm kind of in charge of this meeting. I'm like, okay, guys, I think we should take a break. And they're like, no, we actually want to keep going. We were working on like, it was something like this red hot issue. And we, and and they're like, no, 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 let's keep going. I'm like, no, we should take a break because I need to nurse, you know? And and they're like, no, we should keep going. And I'm like, no, the lactating woman in the room will decide when we take a break. And they're like, (laughs) we're taking a break. And so it's like... I don't know, owning my own femininity, which is like, hey, this is just part of my life. It's like, I am a nursing mom right now and that has to take priority. Sorry, all of you. And I think there were kind of all men in the room. But at the same time, like not making my gender an issue. And uh, I remember something um, the president of Oracle, Ray, said to me once. It was just like in a quiet moment. Uh, He's like, Liz, let me tell you why I like working with you so much. I'm like, oh, do tell. (laughs) And he said, um, he says, a lot of women try to be tough and like outmen the men. Mm. And he said, and you don't do that. And he said, but you also don't like put on the feminine charm. He said, you're just you. Mm. And he goes, and I like just working with you. And I don't think he meant working with me. He meant, I like working with someone who's not trying to make a big deal of that. Hmm. And I was fortunate to work in a group of um, women and men, mostly men in these executive ranks who just made it like, okay to just be me and to be different. Um, Yeah. Yeah. That's helpful. Really practical. What about that? I was lucky. What about your uh, your colleague at home, also known as your husband? Any conversations or um, topics that would come up as far as trying to find that harmony between home and your professional life? 
Oh, you know, I, I kind of envy the people who like sit down and talk about, well, what role are you taking? What role are you taking? And they're really proactive about like mm. splitting the household chores. My husband and I have never been like this. It's just always been a matter of survival of like, we each sort of, I'll do this. I'll do that. He handles all the sports stuff. I handle everything related to school with when it came to our kids. And I think he just watched me saw that I loved my work, but understood that I loved my kids more than I loved my work. And I think he was also one of these people, which is how do we keep these two worlds out of conflict? And he just started um, taking like the work off my plate that would allow me to, when I came home from work to just really spend time with the kids and he started doing things like, I'll, you know, I paid the bills, handled the taxes, renewed insurance, dealt with medical bills. And he just was like, okay, let's get you the help that you need with the things that don't matter so you can spend the time with things that do matter. And he just sort of figured that out. I don't think I ever asked him to do it. I got lucky. Yeah. yeah, that's awesome. Um, and tell me about the, was there a moment where you knew your time at Oracle was done and you move on or, or what's the story behind that? You know, there was there, and I probably stayed about two or three years longer than I wanted to stay. Like I was ready to go a little bit before I went. Um, and, but, you know, there was, there were several reasons to stay. one of which was money and some besting. And I'm glad I did because there were some experiences I got in those last two or three years where I wasn't loving my work, but I was learning how to do hard things that, um, that I got out of it. But the fundamental reason I left is like, after what 17 years, I knew how to do my job. And it was a terrible feeling. <laughs> and, yeah. Yeah, it was like legit. I like I find it's like, oh, I've like arrived. I actually have a job that I'm relatively, you know, and reasonably qualified for. But that where was the fun in that? And another reason I stayed a little bit longer, some I mentioned was was the um you know, the financial stuff, the pieces that were at stake. But a lot of it was, I had young kids and my husband and I decided like, no, the, your best thing to do is to stay there because your job is easy and you've got a hard job at home. And so having a little bit of an easy job at work was okay. Yeah, yeah. And I, I mean, I saw it a big job. I got a big job in the company, but it was a job I knew how to do. And yeah. dealing with toddlers, that's a job I did not know how to do. Like, that's a hard job. Yeah, I, I can uh, testify of that as well. I mean, I'm in the thick of it in my life right now with toddlers. So, <laughs> no. um, and, and so with, um, and that sort of goes back to the, you know, when the, the dog who catches the cards, you don't know, you, you've been chasing this goal that you wanted just a job that you're really good at. And once you have it, you realize, well, I was having, it was much more challenging and fun. Before in the yeah, the chase, right? And in that in that journey, and that maybe reflects on some of your writing in, in Rookie Smarts. Um, that as I read that book, I found it just so encouraging. Of because when you're young and you're sort of trying to, you know, get some traction and whatnot, you can be discouraged. And so, what what would you say to those who may be in that that mode of being a rookie, or, or they're young in their career, or doing something new that they feel maybe underqualified for? What what encouragement would you start with there? Well, you know. It's this idea that the value we create is way more important than the value we bring. 
And, you know, you don't need to know the answers. Like your value when you start a company is not that you have the answers. And nobody, nobody cares what you learned about in their MBA program. Like the most annoying MBAs for the ones who are like, well, and we're like, we don't actually care about that. It's very much like when Bob Shaver, that VP told me like, Liz, we love that you want to go build a management training program and have made your argument as to why that's relevant, but that's not the problem we have. And so it's not the know-how that you bring from your MBA program that's valuable. It's the ability to learn. And And it's the value that you're going to create rather than the value you bring that really makes you valuable to an organization. Mm -hmm. And so, you know, when you know that it's like, oh, it's my ability to learn and to learn fast, to figure out what the problem is, to put a team together, to solve it, to recognize when you've been successful and to keep moving. That is, that's, that's where I need to put my energies is on the learning, not the knowing. Then it puts you into a position where you can do, I think what I had a whole string of doing at Oracle was just doing a thing. I call it the naive yes. It's like, and I'm a huge proponent of the naive yes. And the naive yes is not saying yes to everything. That's, that's maddening. But the naive yes is saying yes to hard things before your brain kicks in. So it's doing it well, like, oh, that's interesting. That's important. That's fun. That would be, and then you say yes, and then you figure out how to do it. People always say, Liz, how do you, how do you get books done? And I'm like, I just sign a contract. That's my secret because (laughs) I just said, yes, I would do it. Not knowing how I was going to do it. But then I'm like, well, I signed my name. I probably should figure out how to do that well. And it's actually, you can build a thrilling career off of just saying yes before something your more anxious or self-conscious part of you tells you to say no. Yeah. And that, and I love that, you know, in this uh, context of being a Latter-day Saint and, you know, professionals that, that we believe in faith. And part of that faith is sort of leaning into these opportunities that, that come to us knowing that we will grow through them. And I think God finds us there, right? It's not like he waits around until we show up on, on Sunday, but he's, he's coming to us in these opportunities in the office when we feel underprepared, but we lean in. Because we're vulnerable and we're mm. needy in this space and we need God in these spaces and we need salvation and we need um, repentance. Like that's, that's where that spiritual growth happens. And when we act in faith and the same thing happens professionally when we act in faith, like we become needful of mentoring, needful of learning and magical stuff happens in, in how we grow. And I really do think it is often not just our faith as members of the church, but also, you know, as, as members of a lay church, you know, you say yes to a calling. Like, I don't know how to do that. Yeah. Like, yeah. First of all, I don't want to do that. I don't like that. I don't know how to do it. But but yet the words yes come out. And it's something my mom taught me. I watched, uh, I grew up in a part member family and I watched my mom who is incredibly devout and stalwart just say yes to everything she's ever been asked to do. And so like the answer is yes. And now let me get my, my skills 
up to, to the challenge. Let me get my heart where it needs to be. But the answer is yes. Yeah. Yeah, that's that's helpful and inspiring. Um, so tell us, as far as with the, the Wiseman Group and things you do there, obviously it uh, involves a lot of writing and, and publishing and whatnot, but uh, what, what are the areas that excite you most about the work you're doing doing now? Mm, well, um, I'm sort of in some ways in between jobs right now. Hmm. In that I just um I just released a book, what was it, about five months ago? And there's still so much more work to be done. Like when you, you know, put out a book, you have you have a lot of insights, but there's still a lot of unanswered questions. So I'm not done with this book. I'll be working on it for the next 10 years. Hmm. Really like it's kind of like when you put a book out there, it's a lot like giving birth. Like, okay, here's the baby. But now we need to raise the baby and there's so much more to learn uh, about this idea and this thing. But, you know, I'm also like, hmm, what are the next kinds of questions I want to put my mind around? And so it's it's a, it's kind of a fun space. Yeah. And it's really nice to have a book launch behind, behind you. <laughs> I bet. <laughs> yeah, I bet. I bet. Um, and any, is, before we wrap up here, like any specific principle or point or... Um, or message that you would have for this audience that would maybe they find encouraging or, or comforting? I think when we look at work as a chance to serve, I think really um, kind of amazing things happen, you know, that, you know, on, on, on one extreme, there are people who are like very service oriented, but they're a doormat, Hmm. which is I'm going to be of service, but I'm going to let you walk on me, take advantage of me, maybe take credit for my work, underappreciate me, like that's not a recipe for a fulfilling work experience. But then there are the people who are like, well, this is what I want. And and they think that work is there to serve them, that their bosses are there to serve them. And I don't think that ends up in a really fulfilling work experience. But I think when we go, which is, I'm here to serve, but I want to be respected in that process and treated fairly in that process, I think we end up contributing, doing important work and creating value and receiving value and opportunity back for that creation. So I don't know. I think that's what I've tried to do is like, how can I, how can I serve? Like what needs to be done? What's the job that needs to be done rather than the job I want and let me work there. And it turns out when you do that, you you gain a lot of influence and dare I say a lot of power and um, sort of a voice in the organization. But it it's about serving where you're needed, which is yeah. what we learned to do in the church. Like we're, we as a people are good at this. Yeah. I love that. Um, I got one more question for you, but if people do want to check out your work, obviously you can go to Amazon to see a list of your books and to, to inquire more there, but anywhere else you'd send them to learn more about you and your, your organization. Well, I, um, I was going to try to do this without mentioning any of the books. I'm still not oh, going to do that. Okay. Um, All right. Unnamed books. Um, but yeah, the wisemangroup.com is a place that you can learn more about what we do. Okay. Cool. Well, the last question I have for you is, um, as you reflect just on your, your professional life, um, how has your, your faith informed that or, or how, how have you, uh, 
merge those two worlds effectively in, in any way as far as your faith and your professional life? Mm. Well, I, I think I, you know, I remember being a teenager and learning in a Sunday school lesson that we were a peculiar people. I'm like, I don't want to be peculiar. You know, do you want to be peculiar? There's no teenager that wants to be peculiar. <laughs> and I'm like, Ugh, this is this is not great. But I've it's always stuck with me, which is we are a peculiar people. And I think being okay being different has really helped me at work. It's also, you know, it's helped me in my work I do with research and writing and thought leadership is to not think about things the way everyone else thinks about it, but to look at things from a different point of view. Um, I, I think the way that I've tried to juggle, you know, my various life responsibilities is to not see them as separate, but to really merge these two worlds and like take that Venn diagram in between work and home and church and take those three circles and just move them toward the middle. And like, how do I get as big of an overlap between those three circles as I possibly can? And then just work the core of that, which is rather than, well, this is the kind of manager I need to be at work. And this is the kind of mom I need to be at home. And this is the kind of seminary teacher. I'm a seminary teacher. Um, <laughs> you're seven. That's awesome. <laughs> And um, it's like, what is the commonality between all of that? Okay, well, there's some righteous leadership principles there. Like, and how do I just do those things and act in faith? And like all of the things that are shared between those realms of your life and like working there and, and focusing there feels like a stable place to be. Thank you for listening to the Latter-day Saint MBA podcast. Check out the show notes for more information about our guests and visit latterdaysaintmba.com to find details about the Latter-day Saint MBA Society.